0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Uh, the letter to the church in Thy- Um I want to begin tonight. As I was wanting to set this lesson up, I was doing a little research. I understand the Eskimos. Uh, that live up far north, where it's extremely cold, um, they often kill wolves using this technique. They will take a razor-sharp knife, and they will dip it in blood, and they'll allow the blood to freeze on the blade, and then they'll bury the handle of the knife in the snow, and they'll leave that frozen, bloody blade exposed, okay? Now, here's what happens when the wolf comes across this bloody knife that's frozen, uh, the blood attracts them, they begin to lick the blade. And as they're licking the blade, their tongue gets cold and becomes numb uh, due to the cold. And as they continue to lick, they cut their tongue. And the tongue, their tongue begins to bleed, and they begin to lick the blade faster and faster and faster, unaware that they're consuming their own blood and it's a slow death. I hope I didn't gross you out. (laughs) Uh, Within time, the Eskimos will return, and they'll find the dead animal, and they'll bring it home. In the same way, tonight we're going to talk about the danger of compromise. In the same way, our enemy, the devil, wants to numb us through compromise. And over time, like the wolves, we don't realize that we're dying inside because the enemy desensitizes us until we become numb to the things of God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is the danger of compromise, which you can see in this church at Thyatira. Thyatira was a small city. It had been under Roman rule since 190 B.C. Um, As one commentator says, Thyatira had been a military outpost on the western border of the kingdom of Seleucus, who had ruled from Antioch in Syria. It was located in the middle of a broad valley, and it was an easy target for capture. As as a matter of fact, the city had changed hands uh, many times over the ebb and flow of Eastern Mediterranean politics between the time of Alexander the Great's death and the rise of the Roman Empire. Uh, It did not have religious or political significance, but its identity was molded by commerce and manufacturing. And each of those industries was dominated by a trade guild that was dedicated to a patron god or goddess. Uh, To put this in a contemporary vernacular, uh, the industries they had had their own unions, okay? And uh, they were affiliated with a patron god or goddess. In other words, an idol. Not god with a big G, but god with a little G. And among the trades, most in evidence... According to archaeological discoveries, were metalworking, and the dyeing of fabrics. In case you're wondering, when you think about Thyatira, and you go, "Where have I heard that you know that name before?" If you're familiar with a story in the Book of Acts, chapter sixteen, there was a woman named Lydia, who Paul the apostle um, met at Philippi in the region of Macedonia. And he led her to the Lord. She was an exporter of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. And the influence of the economic sphere of life, according to these trade guilds, challenged the church's witness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, many times at these uh, trade guild banquets, they would combine food that was sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And this would be held in honor of the patron deity that they worshipped or supported. Uh, this was very prominent in a city like Thyatira. And so to opt out of that event because of your faith in Christ would affect you socially and it would affect you economically, your business. And so that meant that you might give up social acceptance and you could risk economic loss. So it was a very, this was a very real uh, dilemma. Um, As we begin to look at the letter that Christ has for this church, let's read in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. The Lord says, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, And I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter, He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, bless the reading of your word tonight. Help us to understand it, and Lord, help us to obey it with the grace you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Let's sort of walk through this. By now, you see the pattern In each of these seven letters, it showcases an aspect of Jesus that you saw in Revelation chapter 1, the original vision that John had of the glorified, risen Christ. It always starts with that. And then if there's something good to acknowledge, it does. If there's something bad to rebuke or correct, it does. And then there's further instructions. And then there's always to him who overcomes and then there's always that appeal to he who has ears, let him hear or listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So in verse 18, he's told to write to the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God. Uh, This alludes to a Messianic psalm called Psalm 2. You know, Psalm is the biggest book in, in our Bible out of the, out of the 66 books in the Bible, the, the thickest one is the book of Psalms. It's about halfway in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. There's 150 chapters. And Psalm number 2 is a Messianic Psalm because it, it, it if you read that entire Psalm, it's pointing to a coming Messiah. And I just want to read three verses. It's Psalm 2, verse 7, 8, and 9. It says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So when, when Jesus says that he is the son of God, it alludes to Psalm 2 because there it says, the Lord said to me, you know, today you are my son. I have become your father. And then if you'll go down there in Revelation 2, this letter that the church at Thyatira, if you look at verse 27, you'll notice that that's a quote uh, from the Old Testament when it says he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. That is a quote from guess where? Psalm 2 verse 9. And so the Son of God, uh, this points to the promise that those who overcome will share his authority over the nations. Um, The eyes of flame, uh, the the eyes are like a fiery flame, it says in verse 18, and his feet are like fine bronze. Uh, One commentator says this, the eyes like a flame of fire and the feet like burnished bronze are also taken from the heavenly vision in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, We've already made connections at this point uh, between Daniel's prophecies and the revelation prophecies, how they're connected. Here's another one. Uh, This image of uh, eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze come from a heavenly vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 10 where the man who appears unfolds God's judgment against pagan nations, okay, against pagan nations. And here you're having a quote from Psalm 2 where the Son of God is going to inherit, what, the nations and rule over them. So do you see how all of this is connected? Um, The image of Christ with the eyes of fire appears also in his depiction of Revelation 19 when Christ comes riding on the horse to judge and to make war. Uh, The fact that Jesus refers to himself here as the son of God may be because the citizens of Thyatira had two deities that they worshipped, and they were both considered sons of Zeus. If you know anything about Greek uh, mythology, they had a lot of different gods, little g, and Zeus was like one of the top ones, or the top one. And so to be a son of Zeus would be a pretty high-ranking little g god. But here is Jesus, the son of God, with a big G, capital G. And so he's he's letting them know exactly who he is and the authority he has. And so this anticipates uh, all of this, referring to the the image in Daniel 10 and Psalm chapter 2. This is pointing to Jesus is that son of God who has authority to judge and to rule and to reign, and he is the inheritor and the executor of that, because he is the Son of God. What a picture, okay? Before we go any further in this letter from Jesus to the church, just realize that's the image of Jesus that he's putting out there. I'm that guy, is what he's saying, okay? I am the Son of God who will inherit the nations, who will rule over the nations with you know, an, an iron scepter, and I will shatter them like pottery. In other words, he's going to have absolute authority. He's going to be king of the hill. He's going to rule, and he is going to reign. And then what you will find out at the end of this letter is that if we are in Christ and we overcome as well, we will share in his rule, we will share in his reign. And that's pretty awesome when you think about it. In verse 19, he commends this church, okay? He says, I know your works, and he says some impressive things. He mentions four things. He points to their love, their faithfulness, um, their service, and their endurance. Now, if you think about how those are kind of all connected and interrelated, I believe it indicates that they are ready and willing to be a faithful witness to Christ even if they are persecuted. We've already seen some of that happen already in Revelation 2 and some of the other churches. Uh, He is commending them because they, they prove their love through obedience. They are faithful. He can rely on them. They are serving Him. And even when it gets hard, they endure. You see how all that's connected? Their love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. So they have been faithful witnesses of Christ despite the price they've had to pay for it. And then, to go a little bit further than that, he says in verse 19, I know that your last works are greater than the first. That's a very good compliment. I mean, it really is. I don't know if you catch that, but let's kind of contrast that for a minute with the church at Ephesus. There in, at the first, the first church there in Revelation 2, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus Remember, he told them, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And he told them to remember the height that you've fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first, okay? Come back to your first love, okay? So when Christ dealt with Ephesus, he he took them back to, hey, come back to your first love. Do the things that you did at first first now he's contrasting the church at Thyatira and saying look your last works the things you've recently been doing are greater than are greater than the first in other words from the day you've come to mo- know me until now you're making progress okay because your last works are greater than the first so you're growing there's improvement, there's progress that can be made and demonstrated. And obviously, because he knows their works, he's seen them grow in love, grow in faithfulness, he's seen them grow in service and endurance. What's not to love about that, right? I mean, I I would take that report card uh, any day, wouldn't you? But he's not done, is he? There's always a but. And there it is in verse 20. But I have this against you. And at this point, he gets a little wordy. He's got a lot to say about this. It's one thing, but it's a big deal. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, I don't believe that her real name, whoever he's referring to, I don't believe her real name is Jezebel you know and I know that the term Jezebel is loaded with meaning, okay? If you look at somebody and you point to them and you go, you see that guy? Hitler. Are you really saying their name's Hitler? No. You're saying they're like Hitler, okay? Or if you came over here and you said, you see that guy? Judas Iscariot. You know exactly what's being implied, right? Because he betrayed Christ. Uh, Hitler we know what he did to his own country and and the Jews and uh, to 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 get a little bit softer and perhaps more positive uh, in the church we've probably heard a lot of sermons through the years on Mary and Martha right Martha was the one that was so busy you know tell tell Jesus tell tell my sister to help me Martha Martha Jesus said right and uh, and then Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus just taking everything in, right? Just hanging on every word. Um, and, and sometimes we look around and we go, man, I've been like Martha, right? Just too busy, you know? I need to slow down and be more like Mary. So in the same way, that's what's going on here. Uh, Christ is pointing to a individual, a woman in the church that has a a leadership teaching role, and he's calling her Jezebel. And when he says that, that is loaded with, with meaning. If you, if you don't know who Jezebel is, she was uh, the daughter of a king who married a king. She married King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in the nation of Israel. And let me see if I can put it in perspective. So if you remember Elijah the prophet, remember Elijah the prophet? And God used him in a mighty way to do all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. And one of the high marks, high, high moments in, in Elijah's ministry was when he had a showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that story? Because I, I love that story. I, I actually went to a camp years ago in Virginia, that they would tell that story at the end of the week of camp every year they would tell it, and their trademark was Herman, that uh, it was a it was an outdoor amphitheater. We were in a bowl, okay, and they had these uh, these bleachers going up the hill all the way around, and so everybody's sitting there, and they had this big bonfire there, you know, down there in the hole. And uh, they had a speaker up there, and he would tell everybody the the full story with, you know, vivid detail. You know about how Elijah felt like he was the only one left that was faithful to God, and God said, No, I've got a thousand people that refused to bow the knee to Baal, and God leads it uh, leads Elijah to confront Israel and say, How long? I mean, he pointed to his his own people, his own nation. How long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal's God, let's serve him. But if God is God, let's serve him. And at that point, he had a proposition. I am going to build an altar. And the God that answers by fire, that's the one that's really God, and that's the one we worship. And they're like, that's a good idea. And so the 450 prophets of Baal got together and they built their altar. And then Elijah built his And when the time came and the day came, just waiting and watching. And they did all kinds of rigmarole. I mean, the prophets of Baal, they did all kinds of shenanigans and antics. And at the end of the day, nothing happened. But at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah was there and said, it's time. Now, the context of the story was there had been a famine in the land. God had told Elijah, at your word, It won't rain. And at your word, it'll rain again. And God had commanded prior to this, God had commanded Elijah to tell the king and everybody else, it's not going to rain anymore. The God of heaven's in charge, no more rain. And it didn't for like three, three and a half years. And now, and now we have this showdown with the prophets of Baal, okay? And here's the amazing thing it's about the time of the evening sacrifice. And the altar's built, everything's ready to go. And Elijah says something very crazy. He says, I want you to get those uh, vessels there full of water and drench this thing. Now, first of all, it's been a famine. Water's hard to come by, and why would I want to waste water when we need it, right? It's been three years. Second thing is, if I'm fixing to pray, that the God that's really God answers by fire. I don't want to douse everything. Have you ever tried to burn something that's wet? Don't work too good, does it? But he did it. And if I, if I remember right, they did it like three times. Okay, think about all the water there. And then at the time of the evening sacrifice, there it is, been drowned, drenched in water three times. He prays to the God of heaven. And as you read the story and you find out what happens, you, you discover when you read the story and you read the prayer of Elijah, he kind of tips his hand. He did exactly what God told him to do. In other, in other words, this whole arrangement was a setup by God. Everything that Elijah did, he was directed by God and he obeyed in faith and did it exactly the way God told him to. And when he prays, guess what happens? God answers by fire. And at the camp that I would go to, They had this uh, steel cable way up there in a tree. And the guy was over here standing here by a podium talking. And at the right time, he pushed this little button right down here. And all of a sudden, you saw this thing go... (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) Talking about bringing a Bible story true to life. You know, young kids could go, wow, it was pretty cool. But it reminds me Of the way it it happened in scripture. The fire from heaven fell. And it burned up everything. It burned up the altar. It even burned up the stones that were around the altar. And everybody said God is God. And the king that day was King Ahab. And Elijah found him and said it's going to rain. And make a long story short, it did. And when Ahab got home and told his wife, Queen Jezebel, what happened, she got mad. And you know what Elijah did? He ran. A man of God did exactly what God told him to do, and God showed out in an awesome, mighty way, And then he finds out that the wicked Queen Jezebel is mad. I'm going home, got to go see you, fellas. And he was gone, okay? Nobody wanted to mess with Queen Jezebel. She was a wicked woman. Now, I share that story to try to give you some background so that when Jesus points to you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That screams at you, okay? Just like we would use certain terms, uh, certain names of infamy today, like Judas Iscariot or Hitler. Um, It grabs you. And so this is a big deal. He says, I have this against you, you tolerate Jezebel. And then he goes into detail. He says in verse 21, I have gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent. I will throw her, verse 22, into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. And then he says, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead and then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, when I think of that statement, then all of the churches will know. You know, in the Old Testament there are times that God speaks and He says, and I'll do this and then the whole world will know. Do You remember when David confronted Goliath? He says, you know, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you and I'm going to lop off your head. And then the whole world will know there's a God in Israel, okay? And that happened. And the whole world knows there's a God in Israel. A New Testament example that comes to mind is in the book of Acts when uh, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, both of them came individually and separately in the same day to... Uh, The Apostle Peter, they both pretended that they were giving all that they had to God, but they really weren't, okay? They were keeping back some for themselves. And so, had they just been honest about what they were doing, hey, I'm giving you this much, but not all, then that would have been fine. But they were pretending to give all to God, but they weren't giving all. They were keeping some for themselves. And Peter, the husband, came in first that day. He says, you're lying to God, and you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And the guy fell dead right there. And these young men came and carried him out. Later that same day, the wife comes in, same scenario, and he says, you're lying to God. And she dies, and those same men that buried her husband take her out too. And great fear of God, of the Lord, fell on the church and everyone in that area that day. Okay? Um... That's a reminder almost of the effect that could happen here in Thyatira if people refuse to repent after they know they're doing what's wrong. Then Jesus says, I will do this. I've given you time to repent. I will throw you into a sickbed. I will strike your children dead. And all of the churches will know that I did it. I don't know about you. This is strong, isn't it? Strong medicine, strong words. It sure is. And he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Now notice that the sin that they're guilty of is tolerance. You tolerate the woman Jezebel and everything that she does to lead people away from me. You tolerate that. I think it's ironic that the sin that they are guilty of, tolerance, is the very thing that is lauded in our culture and society today, that we ought to be more tolerant. The leader of this deviant group in the church at Thyatira is a woman called Jezebel, the same Jezebel that you can read about in 1 Kings 16, 19, 21, and 2 Kings chapter 9. Like the Old Testament Jezebel, this woman seduced people into sexual immorality and idolatry, which were two major forms of indulgence in pagan Asia Minor. Uh, One commentary says, she may have argued that those with her secret knowledge could see that an idol is nothing, and that for people with deep spiritual knowledge, the use of the body it no longer makes a difference. Her her message would welcome uh, was welcome because it made it much easier to mix with pagans in in business and social affairs where there could be food dedicated to idols and prostitution might be present. You see, sin always comes up with excuses to do what it's want to do what it wants uh, and to do what is convenient and to do what's comfortable. Now I say those words because. In verse 24, it says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, okay? So perhaps part of the teaching was, oh, you don't know the secrets. As long as you do the right thing in the spirit, you can do whatever you want in the flesh. Boy, don't that sound good? Sounds appealing, doesn't it? But it's not right. It's not biblical. And that's how easy it is to compromise. You know, Jesus said, when I do this, all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It really reminds me of a verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, where the prophet Jeremiah said, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart. To give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. So God judges us by our actions. But he knows us so well that he can look past the actions to see our intentions. And he can make a perfect judgment. Today, in a culture that's just getting crazier and crazier and more divisive each and every single day, everybody wants justice, but everybody's idea of justice is something different. Can I tell you that God is completely just in all his ways? He has complete, perfect knowledge. He can look at every single one of us, and he can see exactly everything we've ever done. But he also has the omniscience, okay, all-knowing knowledge to look under the hood, and to know exactly why we did what we did, to know our true motives and intentions of the heart—I don't know about you—it's kind of scary. It does make you uncomfortable. But guess what? That is perfect judgment. That is a judge that doesn't need a witness. He doesn't need, a, um, you know, he doesn't need kind of some kind of evidence out here. He can look at us with those fiery eyes. And he can see through us. He can read our mail. He knows every single thing about us. There in verse 24. Now that he has pointed to the gorilla in the room. The woman Jezebel. Who is leading and deceiving people astray. To commit sin. To commit idolatry. And to commit immorality. Then he has a word for the faithful few. There in verse 24. I say to the rest of you. in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Now, that's significant. Christ did not place upon this faithful group any other burden. And that word burden, it's the same word used in Acts 15. You might say, well, what's Acts 15? Do you remember in Acts 15, they had a conference meeting in Jerusalem to discuss what what we should do with Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ? Do they need to become Jews? Should they be circumcised? Do they have to be circumcised to be saved? Or is faith in Christ enough? And of course, they had that discussion, the elders, the apostles, and Peter and, and Paul and Silas, and a bunch of them all got together in Jerusalem and they made the verdict that we are all saved the same way by grace through faith in Christ, period. Okay? And when it came to uh, how the Gentiles relate to um, the Jews, here is what they said in verse, uh, Acts fifteen twenty eight. It says, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. And they requested four things, abstain from food offered to idols. There you go, there's one, we've already talked about that. From blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and number four, sexual immorality. Two of the four things they were told to avoid, food sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. And what is this Jezebel teaching? Oh, it's okay to do that. Clearly, a direct violation, right, of God's word. And so that is that 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 just sort of ties everything together when it says, "And I'm not putting any other burden on you." Well, where have we heard that before? Over here in Acts, Acts 15, where. It's faith in Christ. That's all it takes for you to be saved. But for the sake of Jewish believers and Gentile believers to get along, you need to avoid these four things. And two of the four things are being lifted up or being uh, propped up or being taught by Jezebel in this congregation at Thyatira. And so... um, They still should abide by the decision of the Jerusalem conference that was reached by the leaders under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but they were to ignore the teachings of Jezebel. I like what Michael Wilcox says. He says, Satan knows that he can do most damage not by pressure without, but by poison within. Let me say that again. Satan knows that he can do most damage not by pressure without but by poison within. And Jezebel and the teaching that she is promoting in the church is what? Poison. Or if you want me to go Nick Saban for a minute it's rat poison. You remember that? Remember last year when he was all about that? It's rat poison. Guys don't you listen to all that stuff? It's rat poison. Okay, yeah, there you go. Had to I had a throwback to my college football, so I had to work that in there. In verse 26, uh, well, verse 25, excuse me. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So in verse 25, Jesus says, in verse 24, Jesus says, I'm not putting another burden on you, only, in verse 25, hold on to what you have until I come. Well, he's already commended them for their love and faithfulness and in their endurance, so they, they, they get that, Okay. When he says, hold on to what you have till I come, yes, sir, Lord, we'll do that. And so they're going to avoid this false teaching. They're going to avoid the immorality. They're going to avoid the idolatry. And they're going to hold on to the word of God and be faithful to the Son of God until he comes. And then he says in verse 26 and following, the one who conquers or the one who overcomes and who keeps my works to... The end, I will give him authority over the nations. And then he quotes Psalm 2. And he says, just as I've received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers and keeps uh, his works uh, until the end. He says, I'll give authority over the nations. I'll give him the morning star. Now, let's look at that quickly. He quotes Psalm 2, verse 9, which is significant because in Psalm 2, it refers to the Messiah as God's son. And here's this letter to this church from the Son of God, okay? And it's quoting Psalm 2, so that's, that fits perfectly. The very phrase he introduced himself is tied to Psalm 2. And then he says, I will give him the morning star. That's in verse 28. And when you see that, you go, hmm, the morning star. Where have I heard that before? Well, you haven't yet, but you will. When you read through the entire book of Revelation, when you get to the very last chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation, in verse 16, as Jesus is signing off on this letter, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The bright morning star is a name, among many names, it is a name for Jesus. And so Jesus promises his people not merely Dominion, hey, you will rule over the nations with me. But you'll have a better treasure and a deeper joy. You'll have him. You will have him. And that's awesome. Michael Kukendall says, The morning star is Jesus, the prophesied messianic deliverer, who inaugurated righteous judgment with his death, burial, and resurrection, will complete it at his second coming. Yet the glorified Christ promises to give the morning star to the overcomers. This emphasizes not only eternal life and divine presence and glory with Him, but to share in His victorious rule. And that's exactly what He's saying. He says, if you will overcome, and if you'll be, hold on to what you have until I come, and you conquer, and you keep my works until the end, then I will give you authority over the nations. You will rule and reign with me. Wow, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? So the church in Thyatira, the character of Christ that's represented is the Son of God who has these fiery eyes and these feet of bronze. He is the searching Son of God. He can look into your soul and read your mail. He knows everything about you. He recognizes that their strength was their love. And their service, their faithfulness and endurance. Yet the problem in the church, the sin in the church, was false teaching. That promoted immorality and idolatry. And he was calling them to turn away from that. And hold on to what you have until I come. And the promise is if they do that, one day they will rule and reign with Christ over the nations that's awesome I like what another commentator says I'm going to wrap this up he says Christians now know that the destruction of rebellion takes two very different forms Okay, repentance and faith in Christ leads us to crucify the old man and the fire of hell ends the rebellion of the unrepentant wow That's the reality of it. So my question to you is this. How do we respond to compromise? When you read this letter, it's pretty clear. To be proactive, we ought to refuse it. We ought to refuse compromise at hello, okay? If the devil knocks on your door, rings your doorbell, say, Jesus, would you answer that? And flat out refuse it. However, in the event that we compromise, we slip, we stumble, and we go, Man, I, I made a bad decision, and I don't want to be here, but that, that's how I got here. Is I, I made a wrong turn, I made a, a bad decision, and now I've compromised. Well, praise God, we have a gracious, merciful God who wants you to repent, who commands you to repent, and even Jezebel, with all the evil things that she was promoting, even the Lord said, I have given her time to repent. The Lord was dealing with her, was dealing with her sin. He was giving her time and opportunity to do the right thing. And finally, you know, our Savior is long-suffering, but He knows when enough is enough. And finally, Jesus says, I've given her time to repent. But she doesn't want to repent. And this is what I'm going to do now. So if we, we should refuse compromise. But if we don't do that, then our only option is to repent of it. Okay, repent. And repent, Uh, you'll hear me say this a lot. And I don't mind beating a drum as long as you hear the message. But being a former band person in high school. I had to learn how to march and play at the same time. I wasn't very coordinated. It took a long time to get that in my head, Herman. But I had to play and march in step at the same time, okay? And one of the things you learn when you march is about face. And you turn and do a 180. And when you do an about face, that is what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind. That leads to a change of direction. Okay. And when God says repent. His word for sinners. And his word for those that have sinned. It's always repent. Change your mind about what you're doing. Realize that you are wrong. That you have sinned against God. It's wrong. And I don't want to do it anymore. And then turn from it. Turn from it. And don't do it anymore. And a lot of times, it takes the fear of God to do that. You know, someone said that there's two things that God uses to change people. Heat and light. Many times we don't change until we see the light and feel the heat. And many times it takes that before we'll change. But... God has no problems in helping us to see the light and to feel the heat as long as we repent, hopefully, before it's too late. So, as I wrap this up tonight, my challenge is this. Will you be faithful to Christ and refuse to compromise? And trust me, don't worry about, well, when will I be tempted with that? It'll come. Don't you worry about it. Well, I want to stand for Christ. Well, don't you worry about it. You'll have an opportunity to take a stand for Christ. You won't have to go out hunting for it. When the time is right, it'll come to your doorstep. And in that moment, you'll have to make a decision. Am I going to stand up, speak up, and be faithful? Or am I just going to kind of tolerate it and let it go? And the best way to make that decision is, is settle it in your heart and your mind right now so that when that moment comes, you've already decided, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus and I'm going to leave the consequences to Him. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this word from the word. Father, we pray for your will to be done. We pray for your kingdom to come. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we see you in all your glory that we're with you forever. And Lord, we will get to reign and rule with you because you are an awesome God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.